Uh, my name is Adam Pace. I am the youth minister here at Crosspoint, and as uh, Dr. David mentioned earlier, uh, Wes is out today because he gets to celebrate um, a baptism in his family, and so I just wanted to mention that as well because uh, it's always exciting when we get to celebrate someone who is, has come to, the, come to the faith and come to the point of where they profess their faith in Christ publicly, and so we're thankful that, that Wes gets to be there uh, in support of, uh, support of him. And so today, I get the privilege of bringing the Word, and I'm so thankful to be here and to be able to worship together. Um, if you have your Bibles, would you please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Um, and the title of our sermon today is going to be Living with Inexpressible Joy. Now, if y'all were here a few weeks ago when Dr. David preached, <clears throat> you may remember that he had mentioned uh, in the message that he had prepared that uh, this was originally intended for um, our Disciple Now weekend back in March for our youth. Um, and that's the case here as well. Um, our theme was inexpressible joy, and the, uh, that this term, this phrase, comes from, um, from this passage. And so today, I'm excited to be able to share that with you um, because I wasn't able to share that fully with our youth at that time, and so I'm thankful to be able to share it now. Um, if I could just share part of why we weren't able to complete that weekend, it was actually a very difficult weekend for us. Um, some of you may not know from our... Uh, Maybe you've, you've joined our church or are visiting. We actually experienced um, tragic loss in our church that weekend that we were, that we were meeting. Um, and as I prepared this message, of course, I couldn't help but think uh, of that time and Mr. Melvin, who we had lost at that time, um, because I know that for many of us in our church, for myself and, of course, for the Creole family, um, it's a very devastating loss. And my hope is that our passage today actually gets to speak to that a little bit because... Um, like Mr. Melvin, Mr. Tony um, in the past, and maybe those others who we've lost tragically um, before my time here. Um, I am thankful that <clears throat> we get to grieve not as those who have no hope, but as those, of course, who do in Christ. <clears throat> and so today, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk a lot about how in Christ we, in the midst of suffering, we still get to live with a powerful hope and an inexpressible joy. And so that's our main point for today. Our new lives in Christ, they cause us to live with a powerful hope and inexpressible joy. And once again, my hope is that through our text today that the Lord will reveal how we do that, even through the trials that life can bring. And so if you would, would you all stand with me for, for the reading of God's Word? We're going to be reading 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3 through verse 9. <clears throat> it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials." So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are here with us today as we worship and as we study your word. We thank you that we can come together as a church family, and we pray that you would just reveal yourself through this text, 
that it would be not my words, but it would be your words, Lord, that you would just show us how we can live joyfully in the midst of trials, and that ultimately you'd be glorified in this time. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, y'all be seated. <clears throat> so as we begin unpacking this, pa- this passage, we're going to start with our first point, which is finding joy in our hope. Joy in our hope. If y'all look again with me at verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, you may have noticed that Peter starts out this passage by first putting the focus on God the Father and our Lord Jesus. Now, we're going to get into a lot of details, as I mentioned, about the Christian life and how we live joyfully. But it's really important, I think, that he begins by giving the credit and claim to God. This word translated in our text as blessed essentially means praiseworthy or worthy of praise. So when Peter is saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, He is saying that God alone is worthy of praise. He's basically saying, God, I praise you because you alone are great and mighty and worthy of praise. Now, of course, there are many reasons why God is worthy of praise and that we ought to praise him. But in this text, Peter gives us a very specific reason that he is blessing and praising God. He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Now, for those of you all that were here a couple weeks ago, when Chance preached, he preached on, uh, on uh, John chapter 3, you may be familiar with this, with this phrase, born again. This is where it comes from. It comes from John chapter 3. Just as a really quick recap, in that passage, we have Nicodemus, who's one of the Pharisees, and he comes to Jesus in secret, and he's talking with him. And as part of this discussion, Jesus tells him that in order to enter the kingdom of God, he must be born again. In other words, to have eternal life, we have to have a second spiritual birth. We have to be reborn and become a new person. But of course, we have to understand how does this happen? How do we have this spiritual rebirth so that we can enter the kingdom of God? So how are we born again? Well, thankfully, in the same passage, Jesus explains that to Nicodemus. Most of y'all probably know this one. This is John 3.16. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So when we acknowledge our sin, when we understand that our sin is deserving of condemnation, and we ask Jesus to save us, he is faithful to do so. When we place our faith in the only Son of God and repent of our sin, the Holy Spirit indwells us, and he gives us a new heart. We're no longer the person that we were before Christ. We become a completely new person. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that like everything about our personality changes or anything like that, but rather our desires change in accordance with Jesus' commandments. That's being born again. We have an entirely new life in Jesus. Our hearts are changed to want to know God, and to be in constant relationship with him. So this is what Peter's referencing in our passage when he says, born again. And he starts out the passage once again by reminding us that our being born again can only be credited to God. We've been born again because God caused it 
to be so. We can't change our own hearts to be obedient to him. And of course, God knows this. And that's why it says, in his mercy, he chose to give us new life in Christ and to give us a new heart and a new spirit, even though we've done nothing to deserve it. Amen? Any change that happens in us, any way we heal, we grow, we grow more like Christ, we ought to remember this is only possible because God makes it so, because he causes it to be so. And we ought to respond by praising him for that because he alone is worthy of our praise. So if you'll look back at 1 Peter 1, 3, he's going to start talking about what this new life in Christ leads to. It says that because of God's mercy, he's caused us to be born again to what Peter calls a living hope. Because we're born again, we now have this living hope. So let's think about why would he call it that, a living hope, as opposed to just we have hope. He specifically calls it a living hope. Well, simply put, because it's alive, right? It's not a dead hope in comparison. A dead hope would be one that doesn't last, maybe doesn't accomplish anything in the long run, doesn't truly trust that something good is coming in the future. A dead hope would be one that would ultimately be useless and powerless. It would be one that would ultimately fade. But praise be to God, that is not our hope in Jesus. It's alive. It is one that lasts forever. It endures to the end. It trusts that God is working in every single moment. This hope is fruitful and it's powerful. It is one that will never fade. And in the midst of a world that's dying and decay, praise be to God that our hope is alive and it's being renewed day by day. The book of Hebrews chapter 11 gives us a lot of great examples of the living hope of the forefathers. Would you all turn there with me to Hebrews chapter 11 because we're going to spend a little bit of time there. So starting in verse 8 that we'll read. This chapter is often known as the hall of faith um, because it gives a lot of examples, again, of the forefathers, those who came before us who were paragons, great examples of of faith in God. I think there's a lot for us to learn in this passage about what living hope looks like. So this is Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 8. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. I want you all to remember that word inheritance because we're going to come back to that in our text. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Uh, Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunities to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. These all died in faith, 
not having received what was promised. Did y'all catch that? Abraham, he didn't get to see how vast his descendants would be. He didn't go into the promised land, but he trusted that it would be as God said. These people's hopes were not in this life. They were in the life to come. They didn't put their cares and affections in the land now because they knew they were just passing through. It says they were seeking a homeland, a better country, a heavenly one. In verse 15, it says, if they had been thinking about the land they occupied, they could have returned. Or in other words, they could have looked back and they could have put their hope in the here and now, striving to build a kingdom in this life. But they weren't building their own kingdom. They were seeking the heavenly kingdom. They knew that they were exiles, that they were strangers in the land. And they wanted a better home, a home in heaven. And it says, for this reason, that God is not ashamed to be called their God, because he has prepared a city for them in heaven. We don't put our hope here in this life, because there's nothing here to put our hope in. Everything in the world is passing away. Everything that we would put our hope in here would disappoint us. That's why we look ahead to God's coming kingdom and the city that he's preparing for us, because that will never pass away. And that's why our hope is alive, because we're putting our hope in the things that will never pass away. We're strangers in this land. We're on a journey toward our heavenly home. As we'll touch on later, this hope that we have, this living hope, that's the foundation for our joy in the Lord. How could we not rejoice in this eternal hope that we have in Christ. So our living hope is the foundation for our joy. But let's think about what is the foundation for that hope? What can give us confidence in what we're putting our our, our hope in? If y'all look again back in 1 Peter and verse 3, once again he says, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have this hope because of Christ's resurrection. The resurrection of Christ is the entire foundation for our faith. With it, we can have complete assurance and confidence in our faith and the one in whom we put our faith. But without the resurrection, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that our faith is futile and that our works are in vain. If Christ has not been raised, Our faith is in vain, our preaching is in vain, our sharing the gospel is in vain. All of our works are in vain. If Christ has not been raised, the only hope we have is here in this life. As we talked about before, there's no hope to be found here. And Paul tells us that if that's the case, we are a people most to be pitied. But he has been raised, and therefore, our labors are not in vain. Our faith is powerful, our sharing the gospel has purpose, and once again, our hope is alive. It is because Christ died and rose again that our hope is eternal and fully alive. Now let's add verse four, and this is gonna be our second point for today. This is joy in our inheritance. Um, If y'all look again at verse three, just to kind of get the context again, once again it says, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. 
So we've also been born again to what Peter calls an inheritance. So let's think about what he could be referring to here. You know, typically when we inherit something, it's like we're receiving something from those who came before us, maybe like our parents or our grandparents, perhaps. Whatever we accumulate in life, we have the ability to choose who we pass it on to when we die. Some of you maybe have already received inheritances, or maybe you have made plans for who you're going to pass your things on to. This could include any number of things, like our possessions or maybe even our homes or our land. And this idea of an inheritance is actually pretty widespread throughout the Old Testament. It was most often used to describe the promised land. You may have caught that when we read our passage in Hebrews. It was used to describe the land of Canaan that God promised Abraham that he would give to his offspring. We see this word especially used, uh, especially often in the book of Joshua when they're taking the land. (coughs) Excuse me. Just a quick example of this. This is Joshua 11.23. says, So Joshua took the whole land according to all the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments and the land had rest from war. But when it comes to our inheritance, we get to look forward to something even greater than that. We just read about this in our passage in Hebrews. God is preparing for us a city in heaven We aren't looking forward to the land that we get to occupy here. We're looking forward to the new heaven and the new earth. Because we're in Christ, we get to look forward to the day where we will not only dwell in the new creation, but we'll get to walk with God himself, just like in the garden when he first created the world. Adam and Eve got to temporarily experience that, what it was like to dwell with God among them. Genesis actually uses that language, that God would walk in the garden. He was there with them. And this is what God has planned for us in our future. This is Revelation 21, 1 to 4. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The dwelling place of God will be with us. We will be his people. He will be our God. We will get to be with him, to walk with him. God himself, he, he is our inheritance. What greater inheritance could we have than relationship with the God who created us? But he doesn't stop there. That would be enough for us to just be with God. But he's preparing a city for us, a place to dwell, a place where there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more loss, no more death. Only joy, only peace. Those are the gifts that we get to look forward to. And I believe that that's what we're being led to do in this text, to look forward. We're being called to look forward to our glorious inheritance, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This inheritance is imperishable, it never dies, it cannot be destroyed. It endures forever. It can't be taken from you. 
You can't lose it. It's yours, and it will last forever. This inheritance is undefiled. It's completely clean from the stain of sin and wickedness. This is a huge burden that we have to carry as believers, I think. <clears throat> we have this constant battle going on between us and the part that has been made new and still our flesh. We still experience sinful desires. We still make mistakes, and we still sin against God. We're becoming more like Christ, but we're not there. We're still working at it. But when we get to heaven, we will be there. We will be without sin. We will be undefiled. I know for me, thinking about the fact that we'll never be tempted by sin again or have a sin nature, that's exciting. That's encouraging. There's so much peace and rest in that that I no longer have to strive toward obedience, but that my nature has been made new, my heart has been purified. That's another part of our inheritance. It's undefiled. It's pure. <coughs> this inheritance is unfading. Now, it's very similar to our first one, imperishable, but I do think there's a reason that Peter includes this in the text as well. So why might it be significant that our inheritance is unfading? Well, what is fading? Everything else, right? Everything in the world is fading. Each day that passes, our very bodies, they're fading, they're decaying. Everything has a shelf life. The very world itself is fading. But you know what isn't? Our inheritance, our eternal life in Jesus. It's unfading, it's alive. And when our bodies pass away here, we are made new in him to a body that is imperishable and unfading. This is 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 51. It says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Our inheritance is unfading, and it overcomes death itself. Death has no power over us when we're in Christ. And finally, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. It is kept. It is reserved. You don't have to worry about whether or not it's going to be there. It's kind of like if you ever went to a packed restaurant with your family, but you had a reservation, you skipped the whole line, and you went right to your table. You could go in there with confidence because you had a reservation. Your table was kept for you. And God is keeping something far greater for us. He's keeping for us a city. And it will be there waiting for us when we get there. And we can have a confidence that our inheritance is waiting for us because God is keeping it for us. No one can take, of course, what God is keeping for us. And it's not just our inheritance that he's keeping. He's keeping us, our very lives. <clears throat> if you look at verse 5 in 1 Peter 1, it says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So through our faith in Jesus, God is guarding us 
and he's leading us toward our salvation. And when he preserves our faith throughout this life by guarding us, that's when we'll receive our inheritance when Christ returns. So at the start of verse 6, Peter says, in this you rejoice. So what are we rejoicing in? All of this, right? Everything we've just been talking about. We rejoice in this, this incredible living hope that we have. We rejoice in the salvation that Christ has given us that will be revealed when he comes. We rejoice in our inheritance that we're going to receive with him, that we will dwell with him forever and ever. Do you see why we have joy? Our joy and our hope is not in this life. Everything we rejoice in is in the life to come, in who we are in Christ, who he's made us to be, who he is making us to be. And we rejoice in knowing that in that day, when we're in the new heaven, in the new earth, every tear will be wiped away. No more pain, no more mourning, no more tears. This is what we're looking forward to. And this, I believe, is part of what it looks like to have joy in the trials of life. Which brings us to our last point. This is having joy in our grief. If y'all look with me in verses 6 and 7, it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we see something interesting happening here. We see we're rejoicing on the one hand, but we're also grieved by various trials on the other. It's as if Peter is saying we're rejoicing and we're grieving, or we're rejoicing while we're grieving. Grief and joy can actually coexist. Now, this can often be difficult to make sense of and believe because they seem to be kind of opposite things. You know, we might tend to believe that if we have enough faith, we shouldn't be sad or we shouldn't suffer. You know, you shouldn't feel afraid. You've got nothing to be concerned about, nothing to be sad about. You know, we might be tempted to think, don't grieve that your loved one is gone. You shouldn't grieve because we have faith. We shouldn't feel that way. We should just be happy. Well, I think that this text would contradict that idea pretty strongly. Peter encouraged us to have joy in the midst of our grief. The grief exists, and so does the joy. It's just that because of my faith in Christ, my grief does not overcome me. My joy is greater than my grief. Not only is this okay, I think it's actually inescapable. There's really no way around this. Even those in the Bible who we know to have the strongest faith, they express their grief. We think of King David, for example, and he was the man after God's own heart. He openly expressed his grief as he sang psalms to God. Let's look at one example of this. This is Psalm 13. This is the Psalm of David. <clears throat> it says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord 
because he has dealt bountifully with me. David was calling out to God in the midst, clearly, of a very major trial, one that probably lasted a very long time. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? That's a big statement, right? He must have been going through some really intense suffering to say that. But then listen how he ends it. He says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation, and I will sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. Even in the midst of his suffering, he rejoices in the salvation that the Lord brings, and he sings to him in response. His joy clearly does not neutralize or eliminate his suffering, but it's rather a reflection of where he puts his heart and his mind in the midst of it. He focuses upon the salvation of the Lord, and because of that, he rejoices. I think this is a beautiful example of grief and joy coexisting, and I think that that's what we're called to, to do the same. So back again in 1 Peter, he says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. I think this demonstrates the eternal perspective that Peter has because he references our entire lives as a little while. Now, in comparison to eternity, our lives here are actually quite short. They're very, very short. But it often doesn't feel that way, particularly when we're going through suffering. But when we set our minds on what is to come, we recognize that our grief is only here for a little while because we are only here for a little while. So for our short lives, we're grieved by various trials if necessary, it says. If it's something that we need, we'll be grieved by various trials. Now, I think this shows God's sovereignty. He is the one that is willing these trials to be. He's orchestrating them to be. Sometimes it's necessary for us. Why would that be? Well, verse 7 tells us, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So through our trials, our faith is being tested. It is being refined. It is growing through those trials. And I would say that's pretty necessary, wouldn't you? That our faith would grow? This is typically the way that it happens. Because of our sinful condition, our faith doesn't tend to grow when things are good. We have a tendency to get complacent, to get used to things, to think that we have it all together. You know, we don't really need faith when things are good. Eventually, we might even be tempted to think that we don't need God at all. But our trials and our griefs remind us truly how powerless we are, that we need God more than we realize. When he leads us to persevere through those trials, our faith is renewed. We understand more of who God is, and this leads us to a greater worship and adoration of him. So we're joyful in our trials because we know that the Lord is using them for our good and for his glory. So now let's look at our last two verses, verses 8 and 9. It says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, this is yet another example of a future hope and joy because Peter was writing to a people 
who never actually saw the resurrected Christ. There were many who had in that time, but these people had not. And yet, they still love him and believe in him. How can they love him when they've never believed in him? Or when they've never seen him, excuse me? Because they know that they will see him again one day. And this is the case for us as well, right? We've never literally seen Jesus. But we can know, we can know him, we can trust him, and we can know that one day we will see him face to face in eternity. Even though we don't see him now, we believe in him. And it's this and all that that means that leads to what Peter calls a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Isn't that beautiful? Our joy is inexpressible. That is, it is unutterable. It cannot be described. It is so profound that it goes beyond words. It defies all understanding and explanation. That's the joy that the Lord gives us when we're in Christ. The joy we experience here on earth, it's just a taste of what's to come in heaven. That's why it's what's called filled with glory, because it's a taste of what's to come. Just try to think about heaven. Just try to think about eternity itself. We can't wrap our minds around that. Our brains can't comprehend eternity, something that never ends, because we don't, we've never seen anything like that. There's nothing in the world that doesn't have an ending that we know of. So eternity itself, that never ends, that's really hard for our minds, I think, to, to wrap around. Well, how much more will heaven be beyond our comprehension and beyond words and understanding? The glory that we will get to witness and experience in heaven will be so great that no one could do it justice. And that's exactly the point. The joy that we experience is a taste of what's to come. It's inexpressible and it's filled with glory. And those that we have lost are experiencing that in the fullness of God's presence now. And we can rejoice in that and we can look forward to that ourselves. This joy comes when we properly put our hope in Jesus in the life that is to come beyond this life. Our living hope is based on the fact that Christ has risen from the dead and he will raise us with him one day on the last day. We have joy in our coming inheritance after this life. We have joy in grief because we know he's using it for our good and for his glory and because once again, one day, every tear will be wiped away. And when we continue to set our hearts and our minds on eternity, that's when the joy we feel is beyond words. This is the hope we can and should have in Jesus. Now, there may be some of you here who are in Christ, but maybe your life doesn't look like this. You may not be feeling that peace of God that surpasses all understanding, as Paul says in Philippians. You might be having a hard time feeling that hope of a future coming kingdom. You might even be feeling overwhelmed or overcome by, God, by life's challenges. And if that's you today, I can promise you that you're not alone in that. It's hard to live this way. It's hard to set our minds in eternity all the time because the midst, in the midst of the challenges and hurts that life brings, it's hard to do that. We're not naturally built to do this on our own. We need help. We need God's supernatural provision to change our hearts and our minds to focus on him and eternity. That's why we have this in Scripture. It's a truth that we need to hear over and over again. 
But if this is you, I want to invite you to ask God to help you with this. He doesn't want you to stay there. He wants to help you set your hearts and your minds on him. He desires you to worship him with joy and thanksgiving. And he will equip you to do so if you ask him because he is faithful to his promises. And I believe this is also one of the many reasons that God has provided us with one another, our church family. We need to help each other to live joyfully in the midst of trials. We need to lean on one another. We need to be honest about our weaknesses and our needs. We need to be encouraging one another, praying for each other, challenging each other, reminding one another of the truth. Our circumstances can very easily bring us down, and we're called to lift each other up when we're sinking. And then together we can all rejoice as one body as we look toward the coming kingdom and the return of our coming king. Uh, At this time, I want to invite the worship team to come back on the stage. And I also want to say that if there are any of you who have not committed your life to Christ and are not walking in a relationship with him, this is your invitation to do that. This is what life in Christ looks like. In Christ, we have hope that goes beyond this life. We have a hope that is alive. We We have an inheritance that is imperishable and unfading. And without Christ, we're a people most to be pitied because all we have is what's here in this world, and all of that is fading away. And if that's you, and you want to accept God's call on your life to know him, please come talk to us. Talk to one of our elders who are here. You can talk to any one of our church members. We have, we have members here who love the Lord and want to see others come to know him. All you have to do is reach out. And we trust that if you do so, God will do the rest in your heart and in your life. Let's pray together. God, we rejoice in the incredible living hope that you have given us in Christ, that we have an inheritance that is coming to us, that we don't have to be overcome by the challenges this life brings, because we know that we are only here for a little while. And God, you know that we can very, very easily forget that, and it's very difficult to feel that way because this life can feel long. The suffering can feel long. Maybe some of us here have been suffering for years and not known how to overcome it. And God, I pray that you would just powerfully bless us with your spirit and your peace and your strength in the midst of our trials and our suffering. Ultimately, that you would be glorified, Lord, that your name would be made known throughout all the world and that we would become more like you each day. We love you, Lord. We pray that you would be honored in our worship as we continue. We ask this in Jesus' name.